Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called The Structure and Operation of Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs, Australian and Dutch Perspectives. We have a, a great um, session for you today on outlaw motorcycle gangs. Um, this is, I think, a quite a rich session. We have uh, four speakers, uh, experts in this area, um, who are going to be providing some different perspectives on outlaw motorcycle gangs. We have uh, perspectives from Australia and a perspective from the Netherlands. Uh, Australia and the Netherlands have similar but somewhat different um, problems with outlaw motorcycle gangs, OMCGs, uh, and some fairly different um, policy platforms as well. So we'll hear some different um, perspectives on that. And I think what you'll also hear today is some different perspectives on the way researchers approach this particular field and the way research is conducted. There are some uh, different methodologies that you'll you'll hear about in the course of today's session. So I think we'll just um, kick off and I'll start by, I'd like to start by introducing everybody. Um, so we've got Anthony Morgan from the Australian Institute of Criminology, Shaki Van Duren from Free uh, University Amsterdam, uh, myself, David Bright, from Deakin University in Melbourne, and Mark Locks from QUT in Brisbane. And Anthony is going to kick us off today, and his, his talk is focused on um, micro-level factors relevant to uh, crimes of violence and profit. I'll hand over to you, Anthony. Thanks, David, um, and uh, Mark and Shaki, um, and good afternoon and uh, good morning, everyone um, who's joining us today. Um, I'm really happy to be part of this panel and speaking about our research. Um, I also want to acknowledge that I'm presenting um, from Canberra, where I'm on Ngunnawal land, um, and want to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So last year at the uh, OC24, a few of my colleagues presented on the work we've been doing to better understand OMCG involvement in criminal activity. This year, I'm going to expand on this work and explore the micro-level processes of OMCGs that facilitate crimes of violence and profit. These internal processes uh, are really key to understanding how and why OMCGs are involved in gang-related crime and can help to explain why OMCG involvement in serious crime varies between individuals, chapters and clubs. And so in this study today, I'm going to draw uh, this presentation, I'm going to draw upon a study where we interviewed dozens of former OMCG members um, and to try and provide some insight into how they interacted with one another um, the, and the relationship between club structures and processes and criminal activity. So while they might be more prominent in countries like Australia or perhaps more discussed more widely than other parts of the world, OMCGs are an interesting global phenomenon. Uh, while they have a long history in the US and Canada, um, and they're, they're increasingly prominent in places like Southeast Asia and New Zealand, um, and they also feature, of course, in many countries within Europe. What makes these gangs particularly interesting, I think, is that the defining features of the clubs are largely consistent in all parts of the world. So they're exclusively male, they adhere to strict rules, a clear hierarchical structure. Uh, the gangs are organised in regional self-managed chapters. They operate as part of a highly secretive culture um, and there's a really strong emphasis on loyalty. Uh, they wear recognisable patches to the extent that they're allowed by law. Um, and members typically start as hangarounds, then become probationary members before they're accepted as, as a patch member as kind of a sort of structured recruitment process. In Australia, we have 38 designated OMCGs at the moment, um, including clubs with both local and international origins. These clubs are organised into more than 400 chapters with close to 6,000 members and many more associates nationally. While they're um, widely regarded as an organised crime threat, um, OMCGs are distinct from other organised crime groups. Um, similarly, although they're classified as gangs, they also differ from traditional street gangs in a number of important ways. So OMCGs are involved in both profit-motivated and symbolic crimes, like, um, and like street gangs, they're focused on maintaining the collective identity of the group through um, both gang emblems and also um, engaging in violence to protect their territory and reputation. At the same time, much like organised crime groups, they're involved in profit-motivated crime um, in Australia, that's particularly the supply and distribution of illicit commodities um, and illicit drugs. But OMCGs are also distinct from most organised crime groups and street gangs, um, which tend to have more informal structures and are more like traditional conceptions of mafias, where they have a rigid hierarchical structure and clearly defined membership boundaries. 
So while they share some similarities, we can't rely necessarily on the large body of evidence from research into organised crime groups and street gangs that does exist to understand OMCGs and, and their involvement in crime. As I mentioned, OMCGs are present in different countries around the world. Um, we were involved in a cross-national study led by our Dutch colleagues, and what that study showed is that OMCGs are heavily involved in serious crime in all participating countries. Direct comparisons are kind of tricky because of um, the different types of data sources that were used in this study. But Australia certainly has similar, if not higher, rates of OMCG involvement in violent and organised crime. In speaking to our Dutch colleagues, it's apparent that the context seems to play an important role in influencing um, this involvement. Um, my co-panelist Mark has written about before the emergence of the methamphetamine market and how that's been influential in shaping OMCG involvement in the supply of illicit drugs here in Australia. There's also growing collaboration with um, or growing evidence of collaboration with other organised crime groups. And we also have the implications of a growing number of senior members being based offshore, um, often in response to policy um, responses here in Australia. We're somewhat fortunate um, at the AIC in that we've been able to access national data holdings and link data from a national list of gang members um, and the apprehension histories of patch members, including um, office bearers and prospects. And when we talk about OMCG involvement in organised crime, we're particularly interested in crime at the more serious end of the spectrum. We use our print or our principal measure is something called ongoing criminal enterprise, which includes offences such as commercial drug trafficking, serious fraud, blackmail extortion, um, and so on. Uh, the vast majority of which is, is commercial supply of illicit drugs. Now, even if we uh, assume some attrition between a police arrest, which is what obviously these data represent, and conviction, it's clear that a significant proportion of OMCG members have a history or recorded apprehension history of organised crime offending. Um, and in fact, one in eight members have a recent um, organised crime offence meeting in the last five years. But it's obviously also important to highlight how uh, that's not evenly distributed across all OMCG members, chapters or clubs. So the rate of involvement in organised crime varies from none um, to nearly one in three members uh, when you look across the, the what was then 39 clubs in Australia. We also know that the involvement of um, office-bearing and, and not office-bearing members in, in um, organised crime also varies. Um, now, in theory, involvement of both senior and, and less senior members might reflect the use of the club structure to commit acts of organised crime. Um, as you can see in, in the chart um, on the screen where we plot um, recent history of organised crime offending by office-bearing and non-office-bearing members, it's only a small cluster of clubs uh, where there's a significant proportion of both involved in organised crime. But this tells us relatively little about the processes involved or the extent to which this indicates whether a club is indeed operating as a, say, criminal organisation. We've got a, a forthcoming um, paper where we, we try to unpack this a little bit and we look at individual and group level correlates of involvement in organised crime. Um, and what this paper shows um, using these data um, is that things like um, prior criminal history, um, prior offending mobility, um, being a patched member, being younger, are all associated with a high likelihood of organised crime. Um, but there's also some group level factors, um, such as um, presence in multiple states um, and also higher recruitment activity, suggesting things like trust, expertise, but also um, organisational structure are, are important in some way in facilitating involvement in organised crime. And I mentioned one of those important variables being recruitment activity. And certainly we've seen a shift in the early criminal histories of gang members. Um, so in this slide, you can see the youngest cohort, um, which is the top line, are significantly more likely to have been apprehended for an offence early in life, particularly violent offending, but also other types of crime. What we can't tell is whether this represents a growing tendency to recruit members with a greater propensity for crime and violence or earlier involvement in gang crime. So we know crime varies between clubs and that the crime profile of members seems to be changing over time. We can also measure what's happening within clubs and how that influences criminal activity, such as how crime changes in response to gang conflict. And a study currently under review, we show that uh, how crime spiked in a conflict region where there was a turf war between rival clubs and that crime by OMCG members also moved and clustered nearer to the conflict region. Now, we take a whole lot of steps to try and mitigate the effect of kind of police detection of this crime. But what was really interesting about this paper is we had a list of criminal events involved in the conflict and the unit record data on offences proceeded against. Um, and there was relatively little overlap in terms of the major conflict events that were occurring as part of this turf war. Um, so it was clear that a lot of conflict events didn't appear in the apprehension records. So all of this um, 
is, is really just to say that while we have and can gain enormous insights into patterns of criminal activity by OMCGs from data drawn from criminal justice agencies, it's not really able to explain how or why OMCG members are involved in crimes of violence or, or profit, or which aspects of club structures and cultures might facilitate those crimes. So that really brings me to the focus of my presentation today, which is the, the interviews with 39 former members of OMCGs in Queensland, Australia. Um, and we were fortunate in this project to speak to members from a range of eras who'd been involved in clubs for a significant amount of time and in different clubs and at different levels who could talk to the internal processes within clubs. I mentioned last um, that my colleague uh, had presented on some of this research last year, um, and there's a study led by Chris Dowling where we looked at how uh, club cultures and, and had changed over time um, and the, the reflection to these former members. And they talked about how there'd been a change in recruitment processes, uh, an increasing use of club structures and an erosion of loyalty and camaraderie in Australian clubs and how that had kind of facilitated this shift from traditional or purist motives to kind of more entrepreneurial or, or radical. But that paper, again, didn't really explore the internal processes that were making this happen um, and how those internal processes were helping to facilitate criminal activity. So one of the interesting um, observations, I think, um, from the interviews with these former members was the way in which the club structure operated not only as a way of controlling the club and its members, but also as a mechanism uh, through which the club could generate income for senior members. In many ways, the structure of the modern OMCGs is operating more like legitimate business operations. This is often presented as being in the best interest of the club, much like a listed company might pay uh, dividends to its shareholders, these financial resources are supposedly made available for club members when they need it. And we certainly know of cases where clubs have invested significant funds towards legal representation, for example. But that's not also always the case. And certain, some of our former members described how they felt abandoned by the clubs, such as during periods of imprisonment. The income that we're talking about and the, and the, the way in which the money sort of flowed within these clubs could be generated by what we might call legitimate income, namely club fees and fines, um, or through illicit sources, such as the profits from selling illicit drugs. Among former members, this was seen not only as a way of generating profit for senior members, but also as a way of controlling the behaviour of, of those non-office-bearing lower members. So they described how the debts accrued by members, either as a consequence of the assignment or allocation of a certain quantity of drugs to sell, or through the club fees or fines that are imposed um, for often what they perceived as trivial matters, were also used to force members to commit crimes on behalf of the club. This might include moving drugs, or it could involve committing acts of violence against other clubs or against fellow club members um, on behalf of senior leaders. But of course, this was not a view shared universally among all club members. The interviews really provided evidence of the financial control, um, coercion and exploitation of OMCG members in some clubs. But in others, the attitude was more that individual members are free to engage in illicit activity, but at arm's length from the club. Indeed, in, in these clubs, if members use the club name in support of criminal activities, and this wasn't endorsed by the club, then they face serious consequences. There are also processes through that ensure not only compliance, but also retention within um, outlaw motorcycle games. Though the idea of a five-year contract is not specific to all clubs, in fact, it's specific to one particular club, um, there is at least a general perception that if you left before an acceptable point in time, there would be consequences. Most often, this would mean surrendering your motorbike, which if anyone knows the cost of a Harley-Davidson is not an insignificant financial loss, uh, but also violence, the payment of exit fees, or even the loss of businesses. And this kind of enforced loyalty is obviously in place to protect the best interest of the club. But in cases, it also means that members are forced uh, to continue to act and undertake activity on behalf of that club. We often talk about OMCGs, and I know there's a lot of debate around OMCGs um, in the, the typologies that get applied to them and, and, and distinguishing between kind of this idea of rotten apples and club within a club and criminal organisation scenarios. Um, I'm not necessarily going to go into detail because I don't know always how useful that, that distinction can be, um, but I think it's, it's, it's particularly important not to assume that these are static models. An observation from the interviews and one that's kind of difficult to test empirically across a, a larger sample is that club structures in, in, in a chapter are quite dynamic. 
So what might be a person regarded as a rotten apple at one point in time may very well become a, a kind of criminal organisation when that person becomes a senior leader of the club and then surrounds themselves with like-minded colleagues, which is the examples you can see on the screen. Um, certainly there are examples within the interviews where the president exerted tremendous influence over the club using their authority, position and violence to enforce compliance. Often this was in the name of perpetrating serious violent acts in the name of the club, which I know is what um, Schauke observed in her Dutch study of, of police case files. Finally, one of the most common reasons that these former members left clubs was the impact that being a member was having on their relationships outside of clubs. It's interesting that these men who were averaged in their, their mid-40s were becoming described becoming increasingly isolated from their families and friends outside of the club. They talked about how they would have to act on behalf of the club um, at any time of day, kind of a, you know, as soon as they received a call, um, and abandon any sort of family activity in order to do so, often with the threats of fines or, or violence if they didn't comply. Whether this is an intentional thing or simply an act of, of or a byproduct of the club culture and the, and the focus on brotherhood is hard to say, but it certainly seems to remove a kind of positive pro-social influence on members and likely serve to reinforce uh, their loyalty to the club. So this is a fairly um, uh, speedy overview, I think, of, of some of these sort of detailed qualitative findings around the sort of processes that existed within clubs. And, you know, I, these are observations that we've made from these interviews, but I, and I certainly am cautious about sort of generalising beyond um, the, the people we interviewed um, and acknowledging sort of the limitations of, of interviewing former members and, and, and the perspectives they might bring. Um, that said, I think we can sort of draw, start to draw some general conclusions from this research. Um, the first, um, which I think we've made now across several studies and not just this one, is that many OMCG members are involved in serious criminal activity, but the extent of that criminal activity clearly varies between members, chapters and clubs. Um, and that obviously has important implications for, for when we're thinking about uh, responses. Um, I thought, think it's also evident that clubs have evolved um, and they're starting to function, or at least certain clubs are starting to function in ways very similar to legitimate organisations where they're generating profit from kind of sort of legitimate or, or illicit sources. What I think is also really important um, and helps to explain a lot of the variation um, between clubs is that senior OMCG members exert significant control over their members, um, including with respect to involvement in symbolic and instrumental criminal activities. And that might be influencing in terms of their actually going about and committing those activities or not. It works both ways. Um, and often the, that's highly dependent on the kind of the, the personality and the, and the particular individual or individuals that are leading a club. Um, and so I think those kind of individuals and, and their, their, how they influence, not even at a club level, but a chapter level is, is really critical to understanding variation. And finally, um, a, a, just a general observation from the, from the interviews is that these clubs are organised around specific enterprises, primarily drug supply. Um, and there's not much evidence from the interviews that we've conducted or the analysis of data that they expand into to kind of in a criminal market. So they tend to be organised around um, and, the, and the structures tend to be organised around a particular criminal activity rather than looking to kind of exploit any opportunities they can. That's all I have to say. Um, that's um, from, from this particular study. All of the work we've done around OMCGs is available on our website. You can um, simply download it. Um, and we also have a, an interesting podcast on, on these interviews um, by our colleagues who uh, were uh, collaborators on the research. So um, that's all. And back to you, David. Thank you very much, Anthony. Really interesting work. Um, great, you know, triangulation of data in the sense of using the... the um, the police data or the intelligence data that you get your hands on, but also um, those interviews, which are, you know, really innovative. So, you know, fantastic work. Yeah, I see you've been doing some great work on OMCGs over over a few years now. So yeah, great to hear so, an update on what, what uh, research is coming out of the AIC. Thanks, Anthony. I'll, I'll hand over now to Schauke, who's yes. going to uh, uh, give us a Dutch perspective. Uh, and in particular, we'll uh, talk about co-offender group composition and its association with group and individual level criminal careers. Over to you, Schauke. Thanks. Yes. Thank you, David. And thank you, Anthony, for your, for your presentation. And I hope, I hope everyone can see my screen. Otherwise, I will, I will hear it. Um, so welcome. My name is Schauke van Deuren. I'm a researcher at the VU University. 
Uh, and today I would like to uh, shortly present some of the findings of a study that I'm involved in, uh, together with my colleagues, uh, Arjan Blokland and Teun van Ruitenburg, uh, in which we examine co-offending among outlaw bikers. So while previous studies examined uh, criminal behavior and the criminal careers of OMCG members in this study, we, we analyzed the co-offending patterns among Dutch outlaw bikers on the group um, and the individual level. So the results are preliminary. It's very much work in progress, but we really wanted to share uh, the results with you already. First, some uh, theoretical background of this study, um, uh, both nationally and international studies. For instance, the Australian colleagues, uh, they have shown that uh, outlaw motorcycle gang members are disproportionately involved in basically every type of crime. And, and we also see that if OMCG members commit crime, they tend to do so, they're not tend to do so alone, but for a large party, the OMCG crime is committed with, with other offenders, with, with co-offenders. And, and Klaus van Lampe argued in this sense that OMCGs can be viewed as associational structures. So there are societies, there are gatherings of people, of like-minded people, and not so much with the intent to commit crime, uh, but there are more or less gatherings of people that are inclined to, to commit crime. And in these associational structures, uh, OMCG members provide their members with what is called a offender convergence setting. So a setting where people can find like-minded individuals and also suitable co-offenders. And the joint OMCG membership is also argued to provide a basis of trust that is needed to engage in co-offending relationships. Uh, so, for instance, the OMERTA or, or the Code of Silence um, acts as a strong basis of trust within the OMCG subculture. Um, for instance, if you are a member of an OMCG, you can be quite sure that your fellow club members won't talk to the police about your criminal behavior, about your criminal activities, if they are arrested by the police. So this is basically the scientific point of view. OMCGs as co-offending offender convergence settings and associational structures. But then there's this law enforcement take, which is well really debated in, in scientific research, uh, but this, because this law enforcement take uh, uh, suggests that OMCGs might function as uh, criminal organizations. And in that case, the organization of the criminal behavior uh, follows the formal organization of the club with office bearers orchestrating the criminal behavior of members lower in the organizational chain. So this is a little bit of a, a theoretical background for this study. Uh, Klaus von Lampe also talks about uh, criminal exploitable ties. So if you want to co-offend uh, with someone, there are manifest ties and latent uh, criminal ties. Manifest ties uh, represent the criminal ties or represent the persons that you've actually co-offended with yourself. And uh, then there are the uh, latent criminal ties uh, uh, people that you have not co-offended with yourself, but that you may know uh, through the people that you have co-offended with. Um, and uh, I tried, or we tried to visualize this in a way our data is structured. So on the left side of the slide, the black dots uh, represent the, the individual OMCG members, and the gray squares uh, represent the offenses where these uh, OMCG members have been registered as being a prime suspect. So, for instance, in offense one, uh, OMCG members A, B, and C are registered as the prime suspects, while in, in offense two, uh, uh, OMCG members C, D, and E are seen as the prime suspects in this case. And this is what we would call a, a two-mode network in which offenders are nested in offenses. And we transformed this two-mode network into a one-mode network in which well, every relation between a node in which every relation between an OMCG member uh, is based on uh, an offense they committed together. So it's, it really represents co-offending ties. Um, so if we look, for instance, at OMCG member A on the right side of this slide, then we see that his manifest, manifest ties are OMCG member B and C, and OMCG member D, E and F are his latent or more indirect criminal ties. And the manifest criminal ties and the latent criminal ties together uh, represent the co-offending group. Um, and that is uh, the level of our analysis for this paper. So based on, on theory, based on empirical literature on co-offending in general and on co-offending 
among OMCGs in particular, we came up with several hypotheses, two on, on the group level and two on, on the individual level. So on the group level, we expected that to the extent that trust is important for forging durable co-offending groups, small and homogeneous co-offending groups will be associated with a longer and more frequent group level criminal career. Because if the co-offending group consists of, well, a small number of people, um, it is easier to trust those people, especially when those people are from the same OMCG instead of from rifling OMCGs. The second uh, hypothesis on the group level, to the extent that uh, rank differences within co-offending groups signal clubs acting as criminal organizations, the presence of an office bearer will be associated with a longer and more frequent group level criminal career. You might expect that if there is a co-offending group in which a office bearer is present, such as a president or a road captain or a secretary, it might be that especially this co-offending group um, has a higher offending rate and a, a longer duration. Two hypotheses on the individual level. The first one, to the extent that the presence of co-offenders increase criminal opportunity, being part of a co-offending group is associated with a longer and more frequent individual level criminal career. Meaning that if OMCG members actually co-offend, they have a larger pool of exploitable criminal ties, uh, which could increase their, their uh, offending spend and offending rate. Um, the last hypothesis uh, on the individual level, to the extent that office bearers uh, employ their authority within the club to orchestrate subordinates' criminal behavior, especially for lower ranking members, the presence of an office bearer in a co-offending group is associated with a longer and more frequent individual level criminal career. Um, as we would expect that if an office, office bearer is present in a co-offending group, that this would especially affect the criminal careers of lower ranking members. Which office, in which office bearers uh, delegate, especially their high-risk criminal behavior to these lower-ranking members. Some information on the data and, and, and the methods that we have used for this study. So we started with a, a sample of more than 1,600 OMCG members uh, that were identified as such by the police between 2010 and 2015. Uh, we looked at the criminal cases in that period in which OMCG members were considered uh, prime suspects. And for each criminal case in which OMCG members were considered as a prime suspect, uh, data on all the additional prime suspects in that case uh, was gathered, including whether the uh, other suspects were OMCG members, uh, and if so, uh, from which club or chapter of an OMCG they uh, were a member of. So I finally uh, get to present some, some pictures. Uh, this is the co-offending network picture that we get if we look at the total crimes between 2010 and 2015. Well, basically we get one lar large giant component. It's, it's all over the place. Uh, the different colors within this uh, picture represent uh, the different uh, Dutch OMCGs. Um, and what this picture actually shows is that OMCG members are co-offending with each other. And more specifically, we see that OMCG members get their co-offenders both from within their own OMCG, but also from uh, outside their OMCG. Um, we use an algorithm in R, the so-called Gerven-Newman algorithm, um, to distinguish different co-offending groups within this total network. Um, we find, if we use that algorithm, we find 215 co-offending groups that can be distinguished within this whole network. Uh, we find 162 solo offenders, 12 diets, and 41 triads or larger. So that the, last, uh, the letter means uh, co-offending groups that consist of uh, three or more uh, individuals. So the results on, on the group level, uh, I will highlight some of the results that are relevant with regards to the hypothesis. Um, we expected that group size would be both uh, important for the offending span and the offending rate. Um, the results show that the uh, co-offending groups, uh, the results show that if the co-offending groups increase in size, um, the frequency in which they offend increases, but not the offending span. So that means that larger co-offending groups commit more offenses than smaller co-offending groups. Um, and in terms of homogeneity, uh, what is interesting here is that we included a variable, a measure of club diversity, 
And we find that higher diversity within the co-offending group is associated with a higher offending rate. So if people choose their uh, co-offenders not from their own OMCG, but outside their own OMCG, uh, then we find that these members offend with a higher rate, this groups, that this group offends at a higher rate. Um, the results also show that the offending rate becomes twice as high if there is an office bearer present within the co-offending group. The results on the individual level and things become a little bit more messy here with a lot of uh, numbers, small numbers, but I will talk you through some of the results. Um, if we look again at, at group size uh, on the left, uh, uh, we find that we see that larger co-offending groups are associated with an increased uh, individual offending, yet the numbers are very, very small. Uh, and we do not find a significant association between group size and the offending span on, on the individual level. Um, in the middle part, what's interesting here, in the middle part of this, this table, we see that the co-offending network ties seem to be especially important for the office bearers. We see that being part of a co-offending group increases the, the individual offending rate uh, for office bearers. Um, and at the bottom of this page, at the bottom of this slide, we see the cross-level interaction terms. Um, and these uh, indicate whether the offending rate and offending span of lower ranking members increases when an office bearer is present uh, in the co-offending group. And we thought if there's an office bearer present in the co-offending group, this would increase the offending span and offending rate, especially for its lower ranking members. Um, um, but we do not find that in our data. Um, so uh, the cross-level interactions are not significant for both the offending rate and the offending span of, of lower ranking members. So the conclusions, in, in short, uh, on the group level, we find that group size is uh, positively correlated with the group offending rate, but not to the group level offending span. Uh, club diversity, in terms of the number of different OMCGs co-suspects are uh, members of, uh, increases offending frequency at, at the group level. And we also find that the presence of an office bearer in the co-offending group is associated with a more frequent offending at the group level, though not with a longer offending span. Um, and the conclusions on the individual level, which I find very interesting, um, um, if we look at, uh, we did not find uh, significant interactions between the presence of an, an office bearer and, and the offending rate and offending span of lower ranking members. So the findings therefore suggest that there is little indication, that there is little evidence that there is a, a criminal organization going on in which office bearers uh, orchestrate uh, criminal behavior to members lower in the organizational chain. Um, we do find a positive association between being an office bearer and the individual offending rate. Um, and this is interesting because this counters the idea that if you are high in a position within the OMCG, if you are an office bearer, uh, then you get to delegate your high-risk criminal behavior. Um, of course, there are some limitations. There are some, some caveats with regards to this study. Uh, I think the most important one uh, to keep in mind is that uh, the co-offending data represents uh, registered uh, data. Uh, so we are measuring both the policy behavior as well as the behavior of the OMCG members. Um, although the, the results are, are quite preliminary, it's still work in progress. Uh, for now, the most important conclusion is that uh, despite the focus on OMCGs as criminal organizations, we find, like uh, previous empirical studies, little evidence of office bearers orchestrating lower ranking members' criminal behavior. If you have any questions, remarks or suggestions, I would be, uh, of course, happy, uh, happy to hear them. And I will uh, give the floor to, uh, to David. Thanks, Jaki. Uh, that was great. I uh, particularly like the, the different levels of the analysis from the sort of whole network through to subgroups and then down to the individual level. I think there's some really neat findings there. So thank you very much. Uh, we're going to move on to my presentation uh, that will be followed by Mark's. Um, I think that this next presentation actually flows quite nicely from Shaki's presentation. So this is um, another sort of co-offending network analysis, this time using Australian data. Um, 
I'm going to be talking about a, a program of research or a series of, uh, of um, different analyses that we've conducted. Uh, we being, uh, this is a, a collaboration between Deakin University and the Australian Institute of Criminology, uh, but also includes an additional colleague from Germany who has some expertise in some of the advanced social network analysis that we employed as part of one of the studies. So a little bit by way of background, and, and much of this has already been covered by my co-presenters, uh, so it's kind of a, a, a neat um, background to, to the work that we've done in this study. So we know that IMCGs, uh, IMCG members are implicated in a range of criminal activities, including some significant organised crime. Uh, we know that members of OMCGs or those affiliated with OMCG clubs have significant criminal histories, and this often includes high harm type offending. Anthony talked about more serious organised criminal activities. Um, some of the work Anthony has done has, has also put a number, I guess, on the significance of this issue, the amount of um, funding or money that is spent on um, the criminal justice processing of OMCG members. All of this by way of saying that this is a significant issue here in Australia. Um, so although we know quite a bit about the individual affiliates of OMCGs, we know a little bit less about um, criminal collaboration or co-offending within and between OMCG clubs. Um, and we also understand from previous research that there is some type of overlap between the hierarchical structure of OMCG groups um, and criminal activity of those groups, but the overlap and how this actually plays out is relatively poorly understood. Anthony mentioned the, um, the three scenario idea of um, Lachlan and von Lampe. Uh, one of the reasons why I think this can be a, a helpful way of thinking through the way that the formal hierarchy of OMCGs relates to their criminal activity is that this is a a simple but neat way of describing different perspectives on that intersection. It incorporates how OMCG clubs often describe themselves and how crime fits into their activities, but it also describes how many law enforcement agencies see OMCG clubs. So we have the bad apple scenario, um, the club within a club scenario, and then criminal organisation scenario. I've translated these ideas into network type formats. So in the bad apple scenario, we have individuals within clubs who are engaged in significant criminal activity, but the clubs themselves don't direct that activity. Uh, and many club members are not involved in crime. That's the bad apple idea. Club within a club where we have a subset or a subgroup within a club who engage in criminal activity, but again, not directed by the club and does not have the involvement of office bearers. In my little network diagrams, the office bearers are designated as triangles and regular members designated by circles. And in a criminal organisation scenario, we have a situation where the club is operating primarily to engage in significant criminal activity. and. The study or the, the studies that we conducted, the analyses we've conducted, have really been focused on attempts to unpack or unravel some of this in the context of co-offending between different members of OMCGs within and across different clubs and also looking at members of different ranks. The research questions that we're asking in the, this program of research are quite varied and there's a lot more than what, what I'm describing here. I'm sort of giving a bit of a cut down version of this program of research. But, but some of the questions we've asked are, do members of different OMCG clubs tend to co-offend with each other? Do office bearers tend to co-offend with other members? Is there evidence of, of brokerage within these networks? Uh, and the data that we used for this study was a combination of uh, arrests of OMCGs and information about uh, OMCG affiliation, the club to which they were affiliated, and also their rank. We had arrest or charge data between 2015 to 2020 in the state of New South Wales in Australia. 
Uh, and very similar to Schauke's work, we matched or mapped individuals to crime events. And when we do that, we're able to turn what is referred to as a two-mode network, people to events, people to crime events, into a one-mode network where we're simply talking about people being connected to other people, OMCG affiliates connected to other OMCG affiliates through their uh, criminal activities. I'm going to return to that idea of analysing co-offending networks. It's the traditional way of, of uh, analysing co-offending networks, but there have recently been some suggestions that there are some downsides or limitations to that to that type of analysis, and I'll come to that shortly. So we examined five different crime types. We needed a way to sort of reduce the data. So we've looked at, um, in the same way I think that Anthony has, violence and intimidation crimes, short-term instrumental acts, ongoing criminal enterprise, that organised crime type offending, public order and regulatory offences, and then other offences against the person um, that aren't covered through uh, the, the um, violence and intimidation type category. Just to give you a sense of what the data looks like with respect to the proportion of members, because I think this helps to understand or to interpret some of the results that we end up with. Not surprisingly, around 50% of affiliates in the network were regular members of OMCGs. About 30% were associates, those who were associated with other members but were not members themselves and were not as far as was known seeking membership. Office bearers represented about 12% of the members and then nominees, those seeking membership or undergoing uh, a traineeship, if you like, to membership represented about 8.5%. So we can, like Schauke did, translate this into um, network maps. I'm not going to show you all of the maps because we, we did this for all crime types and then for each of the five crime types that I've described. What you're seeing here is network maps by, by crime type, but also by club. So each of the, the dots or the nodes in these network maps represents an individual affiliate of an OMCG, and the colours represent different clubs. So um, just as Schauke found, uh, we found that there was co-offending occurring across clubs. So some of these, this co-offending is happening within particular clubs, but quite a bit of it is happening across clubs, which I think is a is quite an interesting finding. These network maps um, the same represent the same overall network and ongoing criminal enterprise, but in this case, the colours of the nodes represent um, different ranks. So in this case, the red nodes are representing office bearers. When we first started to examine some of these uh, network maps, the thing that struck us most was that what seems to be going on, particularly within the particular crime types, the specific crime types, is small subgroups or in network talk, clicks, small clicks, small subgroups appear to be engaged in co-offending activities. And we wanted to dig into that uh, idea to see uh, what was happening, particularly within the framework of those three scenarios and to look specifically at the, the um, office bearers and office bearer participation in co-offending networks and these co-offending subgroups. We were also able to look, to dig down into the, the, sort of the clubs and to look at differences between clubs. We've already heard I think from both Anthony and Schauke that there's there are often differences between clubs. Uh, and here we have club one and club five, just to show you that there are differences in not only the number of individuals who are involved in co-offending within those clubs, um, but also different patterns of co-offending. And I'll come back to that shortly. So the first thing that we, the first type of analysis that we did was a fairly basic, what's called component analysis, where we were wanting to look at what was happening within these little subgroups or components within the network. And for each uh, offence type, we were able to look at the size of those components and the proportion of office bearers within each of those um, components. Once we did that for all crime types, what we found was that 
approximately a quarter of those um, components for every crime type, it was higher for some than others, but around a quarter and upwards uh, involved office bearers. So what this suggests is that office bearers are, are involved in uh, small subgroups across different crime types, um, but that there are some differences depending on the particular crime type that we're talking about. You'll see that other offences against the person are, are a bit higher there. And we also see that same trend that uh, both Anthony and Schalke talked about where not all, not all clubs are the same. So in this graph, if you look on the right-hand side or focus on the right-hand side, you'll see that for club number one, um, around 10% of the components in the co-offending network of club one, the entire co-offending network, including all crimes, about 10% of those involved office bearers. Whereas for um, clubs five and two, 50% um, of those subgroups or cliques involved office bearers. So not all clubs are the same. Uh, for some clubs, office bearers are more involved in co-offending than others. I mentioned earlier that there are some limitations to the use of this um, two-mode to one-mode transposition in network analysis. And again, it's been the traditional way of doing this, this type of co-offending work for many, many years. And much of our work in co-offending spaces used this very analysis. But just recently, there have been some movements within the social network scholarship that suggests that there might be some alternative and potentially superior ways of, of doing these kinds of analyses. There are some boring technical reasons for that, but primarily what happens is that when you transpose a, a two-mode to a one-mode network, there's a risk that you will overestimate different types of patterns of connection within the, the data, and in particular that you might overestimate what are called triadic connections, connections of three people together in a little triangle. Um, and so in addition to those cross-sectional um, network analyses that I've described, we all have also recently conducted, um, and this is a paper that's currently under review, uh, is some relational hyper-event models. These are longitudinal models that can take into account network dynamics over time. I'm going to spare you the models and the, the, the numbers around this, but I'm just going to talk you through some of our emerging findings using these relational hyper-event models. With respect to when we run all ranks through these models, we find that firstly, repeat arrests tend to occur with the same co-offending partners. So there's some consistency in co-offending partners across time in uh, OMCG co-offending networks. Lower ranked affiliates tend to be arrested more often than higher ranked affiliates. There's at least two reasons that that might be happening. One, there's more of them. Two, um, maybe there's some um, uh, dynamics within these co-offending networks where higher ranking affiliates, office bearers, for example, keep at arm's length from criminal activity that's been documented in the literature previously. Um, and arrests tend to involve co-offenders of the same rank and the same club when we look at all ranks. When we look at office bearers, things become a bit more interesting. They're more likely to be arrested with other office bearers and with OMCG affiliates from other clubs. They seem to be engaged as brokers between uh, clubs when there's co-offending occurring. So there's some evidence that these office bearers are what we know as brokers, or what we call brokers in social network lingo, who span structural holes in the network. So moving to some conclusions. Co-offending uh, among OMCG affiliates occurs in these small subgroups or network components. We find some support for this, the club within a club idea, but also for the criminal organisation scenario based on the data that I've shown today. Um, and that that probably varies between clubs. Office bearers appear to assume a strategic position within co-offending networks. Interventions, policing interventions might focus on these interconnections across clubs, these brokers. Uh, I would argue it's further evidence of the utility of social network analysis in this research and that this new advanced social network technique, relational hyper-event models might be a viable and potentially even an optimal analytical strategy for co-offending networks. 
I'm pretty much over time, so I'll finish by saying that much of what I've discussed today has just been published in Trends in Organised Crime. So if this is of interest to you, please take a look at that um, paper. If you can't find it, happy for you to contact me and I'll send you a copy. And I'll also do a quick plug for uh, my book, Organised Crime and Law Enforcement, that uh, runs at some of these issues at sort of a, a higher level, talks about networks and organised crime, but also networks and how law enforcement engage with networks to fight organised crime. Thank you very much. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to pass immediately across to Mark. Okay, thanks, David. So I'm looking at what I call bikey business. I'm coming up from a very qualitative um, perspective. And what I'm really asking here is what is the role of OMCG culture in the offending by members? I've read the court reports, the police reports, and everything about the actual offences that have occurred. And I've, I've tried to tie that up to how OMCG culture works. So I've taken out a lot of the background stuff that everyone else has already covered probably better than I could. And I'm going to talk a bit more about culture to set that up. Now, brotherhood is the primary cultural factor of an outlaw motorcycle gang. As one um, Australian leader said, your wife can leave you, you can lose your jobs, your, your kids may never speak to you, but the club will never let you down. So that is the primary attraction for men to join the club. And that, um, Anthony had that great slide about how people actually were joining and they were getting a, they're getting a psychological benefit out of joining. But 99% of men who join, join for that reason, they don't join to offend, but they can't avoid the fact that part of this club culture ultimately involves some form of criminal offence in the relation to violence, if nothing else. So while I don't treat them as criminal groups, because I think that distorts the background, I think everyone's already made that case that that's not necessarily the case anyhow. Um, crime is definitely an inevitable part of outlaw motorcycle gang membership. Um, whilst we may not have convictions for everybody, there is an expectation at the very least that you will be a participant in violent activity between clubs as part of the ongoing um, culture of being in an outlaw motorcycle gang. I'm writing an article at the moment where I'm actually sp spelling out that outlaw motorcycle gang culture is very much like an extreme live action role play. They are outside of normal behavior. They're outside of normal culture. They've created their entire fictional world with its own boundaries, its own territory, its own rules that we are not a part of. And that aspect is really important to who participates with whom when they're committing offenses in outlaw motorcycle gangs. The final thing I want everyone to remember, though, is um, something that Chopper Reed, the late Chopper Reed, wrote in one of his books. He said, you need to remember that when men join motorcycle clubs, they're amateurs. They're really bad at being criminals. This has an effect on how often they're caught. It has an effect on how bad they are at carrying out any type of criminal activity. And um, despite the wonderful ideas of codes of silence, um, more often than not, a lot of them will roll over and cooperate with the police when they're caught. So the ideal of this is a great place to run an organized crime group um, doesn't play out in reality. So my premise is offending by bikers is determined by their environment and the necessary and opportunistic crimes that exist therein. Therein being their social networks, the culture, and their interactions with everybody else in the community. I'm going to rush through. Sorry, I've got still have too many slides. My data set that I'm mainly using uh, when the biking legislation started in Queensland, there was a police application to list the Finks on the Gold Coast who had one chapter as a criminal organization. That document was released and it contained amazing data. I'm following up on that document from 2012 and following the members through. The Finks patched over to the Mongols in 2013, not all of them. So we have two clubs that have consistently gone on. Um, the current um, leadership of the Mongols is tied to that original group and likewise with the Finks. So I can follow it on further. I haven't done that additional work just yet. Okay. Um, 
Anthony already covered the conservative and the radical value. So the conservative value is the original riding, drinking, fighting, outlaw, 1% of culture that everyone's heard of. And there's some key parts to that. The club is your primary concern. The club does come first. And Anthony, once again, had fantastic evidence of this from people who left the clubs. It is an expectation that you place the club ahead of all of your other obligations in life, including your family, your job, and the rest of society. One of the tenets of being a club and being part of the brotherhood is we're the only ones that matter. Now, this is a classic in-group, out-group behavior, all in one in. If somebody offends against one of us, even if that person was wrong, everybody participates to defend that person. Now, we may later decide as a group that that person did the wrong thing, but that's a question for us. It's not a question for you as mainstream society. So there is an obligation that you must participate. What that means in practice, and Caesar Campbell, uh, who is a former Comanchero and former bandito, has pointed out is your presence is enough for participation. So if there is a brawl in a pub, you may find that one third of the present members are actually genuinely fighting, but the presence and intimidation value of the other members being there is counted on as part of the morale value, if you like, of winning that fight. So you always have a guarantee that everyone will support you in your chapter, at least if not in your club. Territorial control is one of those fictional things I was talking about. Clubs compete for dominance. This is old school. This is um, going back to tribal warfare in Europe, in Southeast Asia, you know, anywhere in the world. It's a natural group violence behavior that's well discussed in vendetta anthropology and other types of anthropology and all clubs are permanently in war at war with each other to compete for dominance that war is literal it is violent and it can be deadly if you live in that environment you can see how inevitably you must participate in some form of violence at some time club business as i mentioned before is only business of club members. Now, what that means for offending networks is offences that occur as a result of club culture are almost exclusively limited to people who belong to the club, normally to people who belong to that chapter of the club. So we saw that in David's list of the people who are participating. It's mostly nominees, club members and uh, office holders. So the difference, I would say, in the point of break between the figures we've seen in the previous presentations of these is, um, and I, I have no idea if this data can be broken down in the data you have, but if we look at particular crimes that are related to the enforcement of club business, certainly in the qualitative data, all the participants will be members of the club. So this particular case right here is a Fink's case where there was a murder trial. They um, this individual had stolen the motorcycle of the president of that Fink's chapter. They went to get the motorcycle back in the process of kidnapping, holding and torturing the guy. He died. But every single participant was a member of that chapter who was going there to support their president whose motorcycle had been stolen. That is classic club business. Another classic example was the ballroom blitz. Um, Chris Hudson left the Finks and joined the Hells Angels. They found out he was at a local kickboxing match at the Gold Coast. I believe it was just over 20 members came from the Finks chapter, showed up at the kickboxing match, walked in and attacked Chris Hudson and his fellow Hells Angels members. Uh, mayhem ensued, as you would expect. Uh, they had gone there to punish him for leaving the club without permission and to remove his tattoos with violence. But again, it was between exclusively Fink's members and exclusively Hells Angels members. Everybody else was collateral damage. And herein lies one of the biggest problems we have with this is that we're seeing a cultural shift over time from when in the 70s, exactly the same business was carried out and was not seen in public to today, most of this business is carried out in public with a very, very high likelihood of collateral damage. Uh, not to the level that we've seen in gang violence in Sydney and Melbourne, but certainly a, a level of indiscriminate violence in public that can uh, potentially cause the death of innocent civilians. Another part of club culture is the arrogance and the friction they want to cause in public. 
Uh, this is Caesar Campbell, who I mentioned before. He discusses, you know, he says, we, everyone thinks we're violent, but we only vote for really good reasons. The really good reasons include, you touched my patch, you touched my motorcycle, you spoke to my girlfriend, or you looked at me funny. So they, there is an intent to place themselves in a situation where they will cause friction and there will be a fight, usually with groups of other hyper-masculine men, football clubs, street gangs, and so forth. That is a criminal offence. But the expectation, again, is that you will do it as a group, you will do it as a group who comes from the same chapter, and you will all participate under the one in, all in. Another type of offending that we're seeing more often now because of the increase in policing both here and in the Netherlands is offences that would otherwise take place in private at the clubhouses. So it's the saloon culture offending, and it's offending between members. Now, this normally would never have hit the public record, but it's increasingly becoming so because of the surveillance that's happening over groups. Um, where we're seeing it more often than not now is many of these events are not member exclusive. Other people are allowed to come in. If you go in there, I would say you do so at your own risk. And that is a genuine risk that can lead to violence, sexual assault. And there's also other factors of licensing breaches and so forth in relation to clubhouses. Next, we have another major part of outlaw motorcycle gang culture, which is the severe misogyny of the members of the group. So I call them a, a very reactionary culture. They're literally looking to go back in time to a time when men were exclusively the elite and women were subservient, if not property in some cases. So we do see a lot of sexual assault. We see a lot, a lot of domestic and family violence. I have the Queensland police logo here because they are, I think, at the lead internationally of using domestic violence data as a means of policing outlaw motorcycle gangs. That's probably a topic for a completely separate presentation. Now we come to the radical values. These, as Anthony was saying, the radicals are the people who use this wonderful resource of violent young men with a culture of secrecy as the basis for organized crime. All the previous crime I've discussed is organized. In a sense, it is ongoing, but if you asked anybody, you know, is this organized crime, they would say no. So one of the quotes, this quote is from a, a member of, um, of, he was president of one of the chapters of the Rebels in Canberra. And he's basically saying, look, um, we don't organize this stuff. If somebody does it, you know, good on you, you run your own deal. We don't care, but it's not club business. And that is the core part. What we tend to find then is certainly in my data set, all of that classic offending, and again, it's more than 90% drug offending, always includes network members who are not club members. This is not club business. And I think looking at the data that was in the previous three presentations, that is coming out as well. Yes, it includes senior members of clubs. Yes, it includes um, junior members and some of the tasks are handed down to nominees, but these networks always include members who have no membership and no future membership in the club. And in fact, there are cases where people have left the club. This is Charlie Cannon. Charlie Cannon was a member of the Finks on the Gold Coast. Um, he says he left. They say they kicked him out, but either way, he became a major drug dealer uh, of meth on the Gold Coast. But he separated from the club. Even when he was in the club, his entire drug network with people outside of the things. I put this down as a gray area because I've found cases of debt collection and extortion that are club business, meaning it's for people in the club and where it's not. So it's a crossover. What I do want to make a point about is it's rarely an ongoing enterprise, at least in this data set. And I'm not saying there aren't people who do. Now, it was characterized in the Condon application in 2012 as an ongoing enterprise, they called it the Fink's Fines. Now, Fink's Fines could be for things like, you won't let me sleep with your wife, that's a $50,000 Fink's Fine, which would then be enforced by a team of men called the Fink's Terror Team. Now, we did have a lot of cases. There were 14 cases of extortion based upon this. All bar, I believe, two of them fell over. This is the nature of extortion. The very thing that makes an extortion work is the very thing that ensures most witnesses to extortion won't give evidence. Um, it's, as I said, a grayer, but there are also cases of extortion in relation to things like 
somebody wants to set up a tattoo parlor near one of the parlors owned by a member of the club, we're going to make sure that person doesn't set up. So it's a sort of club business and it's not. But then there are also completely separate ones. Uh, there were cases more recently, especially involving the Mongols, where these Fink's Finds type of operations definitely led to then enlisting people. Um, I can't remember whether it was Anthony or David mentioned, where you then use those people to carry out criminal activity on your behalf as drug couriers and so forth. One of the major things I've found is the individual propensity for violence amongst a lot of the members of the club that started prior to membership and never ended. It really didn't end until they were in prison. Uh, it may well have continued when I'm in prison. It was individual and sometimes a couple of people together, but had absolutely nothing to do with the club at all. Um, often was completely random. It was a psychological response for per, by a person with low self-control to a stressful situation where they committed violence. Uh, that is sort of outside of either club business or organized crime, but there was an extremely high rate of it amongst the membership in this data set. We now have, uh, since 2012 in Queensland, a whole set of new crimes that are also being listed, but are unique to the environment. This is the external environment applying to the clubs. These relate to the way in which we now police motorcycle gangs in Queensland. So there are consorting law breaches, there are fortification law breaches by clubhouses. The clubhouses are now gone in Queensland. We still have paraphernalia breaches where people can't display the club paraphernalia. And of course, we have a continuing run of failure to comply with coercive hearings, uh, which I can explain later if people aren't aware of what they are. So my initial conclusions, and this project is nowhere near finished, OMCG culture-based crime is part of the game and only players play it. So when we're talking about offences of violence in particular that relate to OMCG culture, only the members and occasionally nominees play that game and only they participate. These are still serious criminal offences and you could argue that ongoing parts of the OMCG milieu of the territorial dominance warfare, but it's not organized crime. So it's organized and it's serious, but you wouldn't list it under that other criminal milieu. And if we're going to understand how we respond to these crimes, I think this understanding of how the culture constructs membership and participation is an important part of how we will respond and prevent the crime in the future. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, and thanks to all our panelists. David, can I can I ask you a short question? I'm really, uh, it's really impressive, the, the co-offending networks uh, that you uh, presented. I was wondering, do you have information on the chapters of which these OMCG members are a member of? Yeah, thanks, Shauki. Um, we do not. And we, I think we acknowledge in a paper, actually, that that, that is a limitation um, and that um, more work really needs to be done at, at the chapter level um, because, you know, we only had information about the clubs and, of course, there are dynamics between clubs and chapters and it may be that if we analysed data using the, the chapter as the sort of overarching body, we, we might find something quite different. So, you know, thanks for the question. It's really important. All right. I have heaps of questions as well. I was writing them down as we were going, but I think we're, we're out of time. But let me thank everybody again for being here. Um, it's a great to present with all of you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.